Wong Force to talk about changes in Hong Kong's workforce. A study by the Hong Kong Institute of Human Resource Management found that 40% of employees interviewed believe they will work in an industry that doesn't exist today in five years' time, as talent in big data and machine learning skills becomes ubiquitous. But will our workers even be looking for jobs in Hong Kong? A study from consultancy Robert Walters, focusing on staff shortages, found that over half of the 107 professionals it interviewed were considering leaving Hong Kong in the next five years. While mainland talent could help fill the gap, human resource experts are worried that their time in Hong Kong might be brief, as regional competitors offer more attractive packages. We'll dig into that, and then at 9.40 a.m., we'll talk about early screening of prostate cancer. I've got one of those. Uh, not the cancer, the prostate, <laughs> just to be clear. At 9.55 a.m., we'll get the latest update on the Asian Games, and we want to know what you think. You can leave us a message on our Facebook page, email us at backchat at rthk.hk, or call us on 233-88266. Uh, we're getting into it with our superstar guest today, starting with Roy Ying, co-chairperson, Advocacy and Policy Research Committee, Hong Kong Institute of Human Resource Management. Uh, good morning, Roy. Good morning, Andrew. Great morning. to have you on the show. In our studio uh, in Admiralty, we welcome John Mullally, Managing Director for Hong Kong from Robert Walters. Good morning, John. Good morning, Andrew. Awesome. And we got Dickie Yuan, founder of VentureNix and VentureNix Lab, right here in the studio. Good morning. Hey, good morning. All right, gentlemen, uh, big changes on the Hong Kong labor landscape. Coming up, Roy, you guys just had a major study on this. Uh, what are the key findings? Well, for, first of all, the employers, um, they we found that they have to accept the changing landscape of the job market. Uh, the reality is that in our survey, 91% of the respondents showed difficulties in recruitment. And uh, our president, um, Lawrence Hong, yesterday described uh, recruiters now having to adopt more of a marketing approach, the 5P approach. People price pr a product, place promotion in order to be effective in recruiting talent. So it's a changing landscape. Mm, okay, it sounds like my old uh, MBA programs. But when you say people, they're, they're facing challenges. I mean, it's always challenging to get good people, but what is, you're saying that the challenges are different now so that the employers have to change as well? Yeah, um, well, I'm sure everybody knows that the, um, uh, quite a number of people have left Hong Kong, uh, especially those between 25 to, to 40. So you're looking at maybe the, uh, the junior management to mid-management people. Um, and then there's uh, dropping birth rate, so uh, recruiters are having difficulty hiring uh, university graduates, and uh, and people are retiring, and therefore uh, we're seeing a dropping in terms of uh, workforce participation rate. So senior, mid, and junior level, they are all having troubles, and uh, and I'm sure we don't. We've all seen um, the talent shortages in IT, in aviation, transport, constructions. Uh, hospitality, these are just to name a few of the hardest hits um, industries. Yeah, because people have been thinking about this as, uh, you know, on this show and, and even Money Talk, we've talked about it a lot where it's about like people who work at like waiters, construction, you know, kind of a, you know, high school graduate level. But now it sounds like you're sounding the alarm bells for a higher level. Um, all levels. Mm -hmm. um, it's 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 quite um, quite good news actually for for young graduates yeah, i mean I, in the university i work in students are quite upbeat they're expecting to receive multiple offers from from employers but but i do uh, alarm them that um uh continuous learning is very important you have to continue to justify your uh, your value, value to uh to your employers so continuous learning uh, get on linkedin learning get on google learning these are the ways to uh, uh you know update yourself Gotcha. And if they're even here, John Mullally, uh, you, you've got a study uh, that just came out as well. And uh, 
people want to get out of get out of Dodge. What's up? Yeah, <laughs> it's. I know it's the, the numbers were were even surprising for us. Um, I think there's a tendency to to look at this and draw a direct correlation between what's happening in Hong Kong over the last four years, and there's actually a lot more nuance to it um, because of the 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 people we surveyed, a decent percentage would have been expatriates as well, um, and given the job market in Hong Kong and the fact that I would say around probably three out of four roles that you look at these days, they have a, a strong preference or even prerequisite for Chinese language skills. And most expatriates, unfortunately, don't have that. Therefore, if you're um, uh, an expat who doesn't speak Chinese and you're, you find yourself out of a job, it's, you know, it's a very challenging market. Um, the other element to it, which I think is also more kind of sociological than anything else, is that, you know, for, for my duration here in Hong Kong, when I've hired young people or when I've placed young people into, into jobs, their ambition usually, the number one goal in life was to earn enough money to buy a place in Hong Kong. Mm. Um, and actually, we're seeing less of that. Uh, I mean, this is the probably the first generation in a long time that's maybe less well off than their parents, and they've got other life goals and other desires. And 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 overseas travel and overseas working experiences is one of that. And I th actually think that's a that's a healthy thing um, in many respects as well. Um, so there's yeah, as I said, there, there's there's many strands to this, and I think it'd be it'd be overly simplistic to say, oh, well, because of what's happened in Hong Kong between 2019 and and now, um, you know, you're seeing a mass exodus of people. I don't think it's as, uh, as simplistic as that. Did, you, did your survey check in on motivations? Did you, yeah, you, you said, have you applied abroad? And a shocking number have, have applied to get jobs abroad. But did you ask yeah. them, did you ask them why specifically? Yeah, so um, we, 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 we did go into that. Now, again, amongst the... Um, the expat population, it was as simple as, you know, there aren't the opportunities for us here in Hong Kong that there were even five years ago. Um, and the pool of roles or companies that we can look at uh, has shrunk considerably. Um, amongst the, I suppose, the millennial generation, um, a lot of it was to do with um, basically life experience, um, that they don't see themselves kind of doing what their parents did 20, 30 years ago of kind of going into a company, staying there for 25 years and climbing the ladder. And you see that kind of, you know, that mindset and behavior reflected in, in some of the, you know, the patterns we see on CVs these days and, and the choices that they make. You know, it used to be a case you'd go into a bank and you give it at least 10 years to see where you got. And, you know, increasingly people are kind of coming out after 18, 24 months and saying, you know what, I'm going to do something entrepreneurial. I'm going to try something myself, which again, you know, in the professional services sector where, where we focus our energy and efforts, it does make it more challenging than to, um, to find the right people. Mm. Uh, John, I'm just thinking about, you know, people leaving, in particular the local, local yep. millennials. It's going to be a big challenge for them leaving, uh, especially um, those who are in Hong Kong. And the millennials, they, they're starting, some of them might be just starting a new job or some of them are already in senior positions. To move somewhere else, it's very difficult for them. They might have to start all, all over. Um, so that's a very big challenge. I'm just thinking about in terms of overseas companies, like what are, they, what are the things that, that they do that attracts them to move over apart from, you know, having a different lifestyle, a life change and things like that. So, so the question is, what, what are the candidates attracted to um, in yeah. overseas companies? Yeah. Um, you know, listen, I think some of it is, uh, is cultural. 
Um, I think there is a, a sense that working in a a company in California that you're going to get maybe um, development opportunities that may not necessarily be available to you in Hong Kong or in Asia. Um, you know, the, the power distance relationship between you know, line managers and their subordinates is, is still a real thing in, in Hong Kong and, and broadly in Asia. I think there's a sense that maybe if they go to Europe or Australia or the US that the the learning and development opportunities uh, and to go to Roy's point there, like I, I think that the, the, the biggest challenge here is really talent development. You know, what, what opportunities are we giving the people when they come in to actually cross train? Um, or are we putting them in a very siloed function and and make uh, and making their work experience very narrow? Mm. And what about Dickie? You know, um, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you're an expert in technology. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about in terms of like in Hong Kong? You know, are uh, employers doing enough to provide employees like you know the necessary training and skills? To develop their technology skills, and especially nowadays, you know, with AI, yeah. it's, it's a big thing now. You yeah, know. it is a big thing. <laughs> so, so uh, we we are seeing a lot of employers. You know, over the past two to three years, we know that you know the IT sector has a huge shortage of talents, and um, so so the, the 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 thing, the situation that the market is seeing for the uh, market in general has already been seen in the IT talent sector. So before that, um, you know, a lot of things that they have done is uh, you know instead of trying to to recruit purely computer science graduates from universities, um, they, they, uh, companies like HKJC, CLP, PCW, they, they launch a lot of uh, talent development program themselves in order to train their in-house IT talents, because they know that by by, by try, try, trying to recruit people that is readily in the market, that is not going to be sustainable. So they have already started things like this. So maybe grooming your own talents is uh, part is part of the things that employers can do uh, by by leveraging what the IT sector has done, and and like you said, the, the generative AI, we are seeing that uh, it is also a good Good opportunity because um, uh, we, we are seeing that a lot of employees are looking into using technology to replace or to, to tackle the challenge of uh, talent shortage. So generative AI is obviously a technology, uh, the type of technology that a lot of employers that they can deploy immediately, you know, to see the result. Pre previously, they built a lot of data team, AI team to try to see result, right? But now with generative AI, even a department, they can use generative AI to achieve uh, increase in productivity by, by, the, by their own department in, instead of, you know, having the company to heavily invest. So uh, we are seeing a lot of companies is doing this. And go back to the millennial, um, it is because they don't they, they don't they do not use to see what they can do uh, you know they, their parents can do and this is actually the driving force of innovations you know they, they cannot see themselves doing calls uh, 30 calls every day so they will try to see whether there is some smarter way say for example automating the whatsapp calls uh, what's a message you know having the, the robots to, to write that a message for them and things like that so so this is also the, the things that if you are if the employers are open to for the millennial to try then this is probably will be the driving force of, uh, of innovation from the millennials. I mean, part, part of the history of Hong Kong has been Hong Kongers have traditionally educated themselves outside of the workplace. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's there's a few big companies or maybe government that, that are on it. But I mean, is, are employers going to have to shift how they think about training employees and make more commitment to training employees? Because... You know, Roy, I mean, uh, you know, like I said, like the, the history of Hong Kong was, you know, when, when, we, when the manufacturing moved out of Hong Kong, families would get together and figure out who's the smartest kid in the family. <laughs> that guy will get an education, right, and become a clerk. Uh, 
you know, so it was all done outside the company. But I mean, does more have to be done, and maybe even by small companies? I think um, employees that we speak to um, in the survey, in the research, are telling me that the the need for upskilling and reskilling is more important than ever. And ever, uh, as you said in the opening, forty percent of the employees expect they work in an in industry that may not exist today, uh, five years from now. Yeah. The um, the statistics for students is even higher, close to five out of ten. So employers are not doing fast enough, train people fast enough, and quite honestly, universities are not too. Mm -hmm. And therefore, um, self-learning becomes a priority. We've asked employers, we've asked students, we've asked employees. They all rank self-learning as the top one or top two. Uh, attributes in terms of how they uh, see themselves being relevant and competitive in the market, um, and therefore the bite-size uh, learning uh, on um, on LinkedIn, on Coursera, uh, these are the very popular uh, channels for uh, employees to uh, get themselves updated on things like AI, machine mm. learning. Um, even presentation skills. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've I've actually done a workshop with a bunch of uh, students, um, showing them how to tailor their CVs using AI mm. for a hundred companies that they are applying to. I mean, these are the things that they have to learn because because employers are using AI to read the CVs, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, I. Um, <laughs> If you allow me, I mean, I, yeah. I, some universities may have an issue with AI, but but my university, the Hang Seng University, we, we embrace it. Mm -hmm. I tell my students, look, if you're not using AI, the employees will ask you, why not? <laughs> because yeah. somebody else will. Yeah, yeah. I mean, AI is such a powerful tool. It'll be ridiculous to absolutely just yeah. disregard it. I mean, yeah. whether you like it or not, AI is here and it's not leaving. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, aside from... Uh, professional development and continuous development, uh, which is important for employees, and I feel employers should definitely embrace that and, yeah. and, and definitely support you know employees doing that. You know, what are the other areas that employees are looking at uh, when they're finding a job? Well, the um, the three year COVID period didn't really help in terms of people skills. Uh, in our survey, um, uh, maybe Dicky and 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 John, John can uh, can comment on that too. Employees are finding uh, graduates. Are lacking people skills yeah. and, and not only the employers even the students themselves <laughs> think the same way and and they find that um, taking on internship is the best way to develop their people skills their problem-solving skills communication skills teamwork etc etc and that's why there's uh, we have been advocating that from the Hong Kong Institution of Human Resources that maybe we should think about mandatory internships uh, students should think about uh, taking a semester off, doing full-time interns. You know, um, it, it's it's good for them because employees value that. And we are seeing uh, uh, employees like HSBC, L'Oreal. You know, they, they have you know off camp. You know, full-time internships for three four months. Mm -hmm. uh, we got a lot of uh, Canadian influence on the show today. I think three three out of five sixty percent, <laughs> and, and it was uh, I think University of Waterloo pioneered the co-op programs where you would you were part of the program you had to do uh job placements as part of your undergraduate degree um john Mullally, is that is that a i mean that that caught on fire and became big in canada but i don't know about other places do employers look for that when they're hiring fresh grads if you if you're a fresh grad and already have two years of experience in 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 the corporate world uh is that seen as valuable or is that still Abs absolutely it's valuable yeah. i think there's con i mean european countries are very good at it. france germany 
Um, if you see a graduate from uh, from those countries, they, they usually have around about 18 months in total of mm -hmm. what they call stage or um, internship experience. So it definitely is. I mean, many anybody who's gone to university, one of the things your professors always say, you'll learn more in your first four months in the workplace than you did in four years in university. Mm -hmm. You learn more about yourself, you learn more about the world. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, listen, I think in, in, in Hong Kong, there's always been a, a very strong emphasis on academic rigor mm -hmm. and grades and so forth. But, you know, what we're learning now in the, in, in the modern workforce is that, you know, if you come out with a first class honours degree, it's, you know, it's just not going to cut it. You have to have, you know, we, live in a, we live in a world now where, you know, being book smart just isn't good enough. I mean, in, in my industry, you're talking about AI there and the, and the changes that's going to you know, uh, that's going to put on inside the recruitment industry is significant. You know, I talk to my consultancies, I said, if you, if you think that you're fundamentally your job is to find CVs or find candidates, you're probably not going to have a job in recruitment in two, three years. Mm. Because, you know, the machine will do it better, cheaper, more consistently, and, you know, without any, without any of the back chat. Yeah. So, <laughs> the, mean, um, yeah, some some back chat's good. We more yeah. more of this kind of back chat, just yeah. not that kind of back chat. Yeah. So so, but here's the thing. So if universities are, you know, putting out their, you know, you're a high school student. I got a, I got a daughter who's going to graduate in a few months, and you know, thinking about what degree is she going to do. But if we're saying that, you know, there's a lot of the 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 composition of the workforce will be in jobs that don't exist today, and a university says, oh, we're going to come for a four year degree. We're going to prepare you for the workforce. What's the job you're going to prepare me for? Uh, we don't know something that doesn't exist yet. I mean, it's kind of a crapshoot, isn't it? I mean, like, <laughs> come sign up for four years, spend four years of your life and your money, and you will be prepared for uh, something. I mean, uh, you know, Roy, where, how do universities pitch themselves? I have, I have been very honest with even high school students, DSE students who are applying to our universities. You come to universities to develop your critical thinking, your um, your ability is it's you know how you uh, approach problem solving. Uh, there are foundation knowledge you you need to learn. But that's just half of university life. Mm -hmm. The other half is about do something, preferably something you enjoy, something that can help you tell your story to your uh, future employers. Maybe meet your other half. So yeah. these these are the things that that I tell my students. I mean, um, most of my my friends. I'm sure Andrew would agree too. Yeah. The, the degree they get has absolutely nothing to do with what they're doing today, mm -hmm. except for those who are in medical, uh, Maybe accounting, science. yeah, and, and you know. I, I always say, never, never let your classes get in the way of your education. Yeah, Dickie. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we, we are seeing a lot of university students, they are starting to aware of this, getting aware of this. So what they're doing is, because um, I, I we, we, we have a business to, to, uh, to help people to reskill by learning coding, right? Mm -hmm. We are seeing a significant increased amount of uh, our audiences coming to the, the information session are university graduates or even university students. They are studying, they want to study coding in the, in the, in the middle of their semesters because they know that you know, a uni university about you know, critical thinking, life experience, but if I want to learn skills, probably I need to you know, work hard myself, either by self-learning or you know, uh, taking some elective in school or you know, outside of other uh, institutes to, mm. to pick up the, 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 the skills that they need in the workplace. I, I do find it kind of crazy that this idea that everybody has to learn some coding is back in vogue. 
Because when I, when I went to school, like our professors used to be like, oh, we all had to learn coding and punch cards, and it sucked. And we're like, thank, you know, thank God for Microsoft. We don't have to do that anymore. Yeah, yeah. But now it's back. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So basically, basically you, you, uh, by learning coding, instead of doing coding itself, it's train your, your programming, your, your human and machine interface mindset. This, is, this will be the new jobs in the future. For example, a call center manager, you, you don't manage people anymore in five years to 10 years. You manage chatboard and, uh, and people. So, so by knowing coding, by knowing IT, you, it helps you to manage the whole operation uh, to, to enhance the human and machine interfaces. Well, and a lot of the uh, schools, well, actually, the EDB is, is having a heavy emphasis on uh, STEAM, STEAM and yeah. STEM, STEM. Uh, mm. for, you know, even from kindergarten yeah. all the way to secondary and then university. Yeah. You know, um, so Nikki, in your opinion, is, is that enough? You know, is that enough to prepare students for the future or should we do more? Um, I would say if they are just students, like maybe uh, five to twelve years old, having them ha having exposure in STEM in STEAM probably is good enough because because you can't you can't teach at eight years old coding and tell them you know it's the future right so so it is but let them have the exposure let them know that okay oh this is computer this is programming this is how I teach the machine to to do what I want to do then then I think at this age probably would be more than enough yeah mm -hmm. and then go, just going back to uh, hiring because we just mentioned this briefly I think a lot of employers now are, are hiring employees from a different industry mm. yeah, and definitely. I think the, one definitely. of the things that they're looking at is not necessarily their hard skills it's more about their soft skills soft skills right and, and so uh, uh, John I mean mm. uh, are you seeing that trend yeah, I mean, we, we talk to a lot of uh, hire managers and the, the phrase is, we just want the best athlete. You know, we don't need them to be ticking all the traditional boxes. Now, the, 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 the thought and the mindset behind that is, is, is very admirable. The, the problem comes down to, I find in Hong Kong, is that when it gets down to actually making an offer um, and various people get involved, somebody will pipe up, well, they don't know this product or... You know, the classic example would be, for instance, in financial services, where they say, we want the best technologists. You know, and the CEO, Goldman Sachs, came out a few years ago and, and they, he, he said, listen, we're actually a technology company as much as a financial services company. Yeah. If you look at the makeup of the composition of our workforce, um, but you'll talk to banks and they say, listen, if you can get us someone from Google or Amazon or Tencent or Alibaba, that's what we're looking for. Yeah. And then you put them in front and then somebody at some point in the interview process says, well, they don't really know the difference between a future and an option, or they don't know, really know derivatives. So trying to get everybody on board in that is when, when a lot of hiring decisions are consensus-based um, is the challenge. You know, I, I actually think it's, you know, if you can have people, you know, th there's strength in diversity, obviously, and if you have people from different types of backgrounds and different um, different ways of doing things, um, you, you avoid group mindset and you're, you, you, you build a stronger business. Yeah. Uh, Roy? Yeah. I mean, in our survey, we talk to employers and because it's so hard to recruit talents that fits every, tick every box. So we asked them what other groups of candidates you are actively sought to re recruit from. And 67% say candidates from other industries who have relevant transferable experience. And 49% uh, say women returning workforce, some say uh, retired workers, some say ethnic minorities. So that is happening. And that goes back to the original message about the need for upskilling and reskilling being more important than ever. Because these people, they are not ticking every box. And therefore, employees need to invest more in learning and development.
Very well said. Um, gentlemen, we're going to take a quick break uh, for the news, which is going to be coming at us in about one minute. Actually, I'm going out too early. You know, this is how you can tell I've been away for a while. I'm, I'm, I'm taking my break a little bit too early here um, for the weather. Dickie, give us another. Uh, we've got 30 seconds where you can tell us where we need to go next. Um, I think we have to definitely be open minded. Uh, everyone, like not just employers, employers like Roy said, uh, you know, before the show, you know, we are beca- becoming marketers. We are marketing, you know, <laughs> yeah, we're becoming yeah. marketers for employees, you know, so yeah. everyone just have to be more open minded. Marketing and recruitment by employers. That's what I want to get into when we come back after yeah. the break for the news guys uh, about where employers need to reorient their thinking on this. Uh, first, we'll give you a hit on the weather. We've got uh, dry with sunny periods today, very hot during the day, max temperature around 33 degrees in the urban areas, even higher in the new territories. Ay-oh. Some showers later today. Uh, outlook for the weekend, windy with showers. Not great. I'm taking my daughter to a 5K race tomorrow morning. Hope we don't get rained on. Uh, current temperature is 28 degrees Celsius, 60% humidity, and this is Back Chat. <music> And now the news with Haley Yip. The observatory says it will consider issuing the strong wind signal number three between 5 and 8 o'clock this evening as Typhoon Koinu edges closer to the coast of eastern Guangdong. The storm brought record winds to Taiwan yesterday with one death reported. The Labor Secretary Chris Sun says twin sons who were wounded in an alleged domestic assault incident yesterday had been living in a care home before returning to their family's flat in Wang Tai Sin. The pair, who are intellectually disabled and aged about 20, were admitted to hospital along with their 53-year-old mother, who was arrested on suspicion of wounding. A man who set off smoke bombs on a crowded New York subway train before shooting 10 people in April last year has been sentenced to life in prison. Frank James, who's 64, pleaded guilty to terrorism charges. I'll have more news for you at 10 o'clock. The world has been waiting. It's time to get together and join the ride on the same path. On October 22nd, Meet world-class cyclists at the Hong Kong Cyclothon. Please note the special traffic arrangements in case of road closures or diversions. Use public transport as appropriate and follow police instructions. I'm Bloomy the Tree. When you see my Tremark logo in a shop, it's a social enterprise. Social enterprises provide diversified products and services. They're dedicated to contributing to society. With a self-sustaining model for their continued development, they create job opportunities for the disadvantaged, building a caring and harmonious society. Visit sehk.gov.hk for more on the tree mark. Let's support social enterprises and help them bloom. And I'm Worky the Human Being here in the studio uh, with Philip Wong. We're hosting Back Chat today with Roy Ying, co-chairperson, advocacy and policy research committee with the Hong Kong Institute of Human Resources Management. Deep breath. John Malawi, managing director of Hong Kong, Robert Walters in our Admiralty studio. Ed Dickie Yun, founder of VentureNix and VentureNix Lab. Um, guys, we've been talking a lot about uh, kind of the shifts in the workforce and what is going to be demanded of people in the future. Uh, I like to make it personal. My, my daughter in university right now, she's using AI every day uh, as part of her experience with, you know, it's, it's been a long time now with exams. They had to submit them to a data, central database to check for plagiarism. But now the university already requires them to submit their papers before it goes to the professor to see 
how much of it is identified as possibly having been written by AI. Mm -hmm. And if you have too high a, a score, you know, they'll tell you this will not pass. Uh, so she has to go back and, you know, make sure it's okay. So, so people at that age group, they get it. You know, and as we said earlier, they're going to be demanding of employers. Do employers get it? Do they understand that the, the generation coming out of universities now is going to expect it in the workplace? Um, if the employers haven't made it part of the job, the people coming out of university, they will make it part of the job and not even tell their bosses. Roy, where, how are you seeing that? The employers are very practical. They look at productivity. If they see uh, one division using AI, uh, being more productive, getting better results, they will be demanding for it. They will be investing in it. And, uh, and quite honestly, in our survey, we, one of the findings that we see is that the technology's impact on job churns is very real, cannot be underestimated. Some jobs will disappear, mm. but of course, many other jobs will emerge. And that's why employees, uh, including the bosses, I have to say, they have to embrace technology to um, demonstrate their values uh, to the organization. Vicky, mm. yep. uh, how are they going to do that? I mean, are employers coming to you? Because I know you, you help employers to train yeah. their staff, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, do they come to you when they're desperate and they're like, something is wrong and I can't figure out how to fix it? Or do they come to you because they're already very switched on and have an idea of like what they need to do? Okay. So, so uh, basically, employers usually do not come to us. They, they go to the consulting firm directly. They, they just know that I need to increase my productivity. So they will get, mm. you know, PwC and Deloitte. Those who come to us actually is the staff themselves. You know, they know really? that I see our companies is trying to have everyone to learn Python. You know, I know that they are trying to have every company we need to adopt AI, which, you know, the other team is trying to have AI to do something that I am doing manually. So, so I think I need to learn. So, so this is uh, the, the type of uh, inquiries that we see. Basically, I think over the past four to five years, we have received over, you know, we have a lot of information section. There are over close to 15,000 people came to our session to try to learn, you know, how, what the technologies will impact them. Uh, so, so in terms of employers, probably um, maybe John. John, do you know? <laughs> you know? John, John, you want to give us some input on that? I mean, when yeah. employers are, are employers coming to you with different demands now? Are they saying, listen? I mean, in the past, would they come and say, "This is who I want to hire. Go get them." <laughs> or are they coming and saying, "I, you know, there's something going on, and I don't quite know what I need to do to fill this role because things are changing." I mean, which which is it? Yeah, it's it's it's, it's uncertainty, um, and they don't quite know how to do it. They're, they're kind of almost looking for people to come in and tell them what to do. When they interview yeah. somebody, it's like, yeah, that's it. You know, you've articulated exactly what we need here or, or what could be good. There's, an, uh, there's you know, a lot of talk about how AI is going to eliminate certain jobs, and it will. I think, though, it offers opportunity to enrich jobs. Mm -hmm. I think it offers the opportunity to take out the, the kind of mundane, routine kind of administrative work um, and free people up to do more higher value um, in you know human engagement work so you know it's, it's great to have this tool and you know we're talking to employers you know the opportunity it affords to you know reduce to be honest reduce overall uh, staff cost but also free up their people to do higher value work now yeah. Yeah. The, the talent development piece comes in as like, are you actually, you know, when you've when you've got somebody to, when you've got taken that administrative routine work out of their life, you know, 
what that what is that higher value work you know and how capable are they of doing it or have they been in a role for 10 years where they've really got into a rut of just doing the same thing over and over again and now actually when you take it out that there's not much value there that they add i mean roy just mentioned earlier um companies are just looking about checking about um Productivity, <laughs> you know, the higher productivity, that's a sure win, right? So um, AI is a very useful tool to do that. But I don't think it necessarily means like replacing uh, jobs from, you know, actual people. Uh, so, so Dickie, you know, in your experience, you know, in terms of like technology, AI, and then like uh, actual labor, yeah. you know, these actually go hand in hand, doesn't it? Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. There, there's some... I think AI later on, it's true that some jobs might be taken over, but it provides more opportunities for different jobs as well, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I, what, I, what I see is people use, trying to use AI to first increase productivity, and the second is to improve the customer experience. You know, for example, a bank or even a customer service center, they use AI not to trying to replace 100% of their customer service staff. They're just trying to use AI to provide faster response. Like, I want, to, I, I want all the messages come in to be answered within t- 20 seconds. You can't ask human to do that. You know, mm. you have to have to assist them with, uh, with technologies or AI. And then when there is comes to more deeper or complex uh, uh, inquiries, then it will hand over to human. Then the customer experience will be enhanced because their inquiries w- wouldn't be left in the inbox for maybe two days or three days so so people usually use technology to 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 empower people right? is that uh, yes but come <laughs> on guys i mean i guarantee you right now there are consultants running around saying listen you've got 10 people doing this job i can yeah. restructure your company you can do it with three people Correct. if you use AI properly and are those people snake oil salesmen can is that legit or or if you are hiring 10 people to do a job that could be done with three and a little bit of ai are, are you you know Missing out? Are you are you are you missing out on productivity that's going to put you at a competitive disadvantage? Which which is it? I mean, could are there are there a lot of systems that could be ten people could be replaced with three, and you should probably do it now. Yeah, I know. Uh, so so basically, I, I would say a perfect example is uh, you know a cashier within uh, within the cross cross harbor tunnel. Mm-hmm. You know, so not within, but you know those cashier. You can see in in three months the the whole. You know the whole employment, the the whole uh, uh, the all the all the cashier who try to collect cash in, in uh, outside of tunnels, they, are, they, they all, all the jobs are eliminated almost. Mm-hmm. You know, so so with it is, uh, but then it created jobs because uh, the the IT people who tr- who need to monitor the system, who pre- build the systems, uh, are, are created. So, so how, how about in a white collar setting though? Like I get it, like yeah, fewer McDonald's people because they put in kiosks. Got yeah, it, old yeah. story. But I mean, what about in a white Caller study. I mean, like Roy I or, or, or you know Roy or John. I mean, are, are people coming and saying, uh, "You see these forty people out there? I can get rid of five of them right now. Cut your 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 labor costs by twenty so. percent." Well, let's look at um, academia. I work in academia. Yeah. <laughs> so um, in the good old days, we have paper surveys and uh, we collect data and we do transcriptions ourselves. Now, soon, mm. transcription exactly. done. We just have yeah. people to check it. And we have, we have AI to sort out the key messages. Yep. But AI cannot do is they cannot tell stories for us. Right. We have to connect the dots. We have to draw. They can do a lot of analysis. They can do a lot of uh, data and you know, sorting. But what does it tell us? What does it mean? And, uh, and they cannot do things in, uh, that, that sort of that requires a little, a little bit of a, a soul. Yeah. John, have you got have you got clients coming to you and saying, "Hey, what can you do? What what can we do here?" Yeah, in professional services firms, their biggest cost is labor. 
Um, yeah. And the less labor they have, the higher their profit margins. So it's, it's, it's a no-brainer for many of them. And listen, Hong Kong's not a cheap place to employ people. It's mm -hmm. not, you know, wages are high and uh, real estate is, real estate cost is the highest in the world still. So uh, yes, there's significant, uh, uh, what we saw over the last 20 years in Hong Kong was more offshoring, moving administrative back office functions to lower cost centers. Um, and now it's going to be a case of, uh, of you know, artificial intelligence, data science and, and various uh, technologies, eliminating even more of these administrative works. And they, like, but it's not only administrative, if you look at a, a trading desk in a bank now, yeah. it, there's, there's far less traders than there once were. Exactly. Uh, the machine is doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anything that can be automated, trust me, all professional service firms are looking into how they're going to do that. And the labor shortage might force their hand. Philip. Yeah, yeah right. Just really quickly, running out of time. Um, so John mentioned earlier that he feels like Hong Kong is very focus on academics. I tend to agree. You know? <laughs> I mean, you me <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned your university, you know, yeah. uh, you know, you know, also celebrate, you know, creativity, critical thinking. Yeah. But do you think there needs to be a shift in Hong Kong towards like those kind of soft skills instead of like being, you know, te more technical? Yeah, I think uh, soft skills is cannot be underestimated. That's yeah. the only thing that AI cannot replace. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Teamwork, problem solving, you know, um, just creativity. These are things that you cannot get with technology. Uh, a little bit, but not much. But so that's why we advocate, you know, students to go out there and do something. It doesn't have to be internship. It could be youth development program. It could be running your own business, even failing uh, mm -hmm. to to make it a successful business is a good yeah. experience. Now, and the other thing is about continuous learning. Uh, uh, in our submission to the government, uh, the Human Resource Institute, there has to be a strategy for continuous learning. The mm. CEF today is just not cutting it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So in other words, when you go to university, spend more time organizing big parties with your friends to learn teamwork and organizational skills and less time studying all, oh, the, all the stuff in your class. Balance. That's balance. what I like. All right, guys. Great talk today. Thank you very much to Dickie Yun, founder of VentureNix and VentureNix Lab. John Mullally, Managing Director of Hong Kong, Robert Walters. Thank you very much. And Roy Ying, Co-Chairperson, Advocacy and Policy Research Committee at the Hong Kong Institute of Human Resources Management. And this is Back Chat. More to come. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. And we're back on Backchat, changing, uh, changing gears, changing topics. We are talking to Dr. Peter Chu, who is the president of the Hong Kong Urological Association. Uh, good morning, Dr. Chu. Good morning. We're talking about uh, screening for prostate cancer, something I have not done, which as a 51-year-old male, Dr. Chu, you're going to tell me I'm a bad boy. It's about time. Yeah, we, we, actually, um, uh, we actually promote um, the screening for prostate cancer as, as a professional association. So prostate cancer is actually highly prevalent. It's actually even more prevalent in the Caucasian. It's actually three uh -oh. times more prevalent in Caucasian uh -oh. than in Asian. So... Um, and uh, the general guideline uh, nowadays actually most suggests um, men from 50 years old. So from 50 to 75 years old, if you have never um, had uh, screening for prostate cancer, which is um, using a simple blood test called the PSA, uh, which stands for prostate-specific antigen. So um, from 50 years old on, even you have you know, no symptoms, um, nothing, no family history, you, still, you should still... Um, 
test for the blood for PSA. Mm. So if it's normal, uh, we recommend doing it every two years. Every two years. But, so what's, yeah. what's, what's the accuracy of the blood test versus the old school, uh, more invasive procedure mm. with the rubber glove? Right. Um, that's a correcto examination. Now, in fact, these days we don't usually use that so much, um, but we still do that um, But because um, you need to have pretty advanced cancer for uh, your finger to be able to detect that. Mm. So we recommend doing the blood test, um, which is more sensitive uh, in detecting cancer. But however, having an abnormal blood test doesn't necessarily mean you have prostate cancer. So if it is abnormal, say if it's more than um, four, uh, level four, uh, which we, we define as abnormal, then the next step is to see a urologist to do further investigation to see if um, there is cancer or not in your prostate. Uh, Dr. Chu, I'm just wondering if uh, men, in regards to uh, checking the prostate, um, do men typically check regularly or do you think they're a little bit um, embarrassed? I'm saying that because I'm actually surprised that there is actually a blood test to check the prostate. I didn't know about that. I always thought it was just using the finger. <laughs> so yeah. I wouldn't do it. I mean, are there a lot of men actually, you know, afraid of, of getting it checked? Exactly, exactly. Mm. Now, the health-seeking behavior is uh, much less common in men compared with women. And as I said, uh, it is a common misconception that, like, if you're going to test your prostate, you're going to be um, poked mm. with a finger. So, so um, it actually stops men from uh, doing any testing. And most men think they are strong, they are, they are healthy, and, and don't need any testing. Uh, but in fact, it's actually a very good idea to, to test for um, any risk of prostate cancer um, earlier on, like at the age of 50. And if there is a family history, so if your father or your brother um, has prostate cancer, you should start um, at an even earlier age of around 45. And there's also a, a bit of a misconception, isn't it, that like, like you know, even later stage of, stages of uh, prostate cancer, that it's uh, curable. But this is actually not true, isn't it? it? It's quite, you know, the death rate is quite high. Well, um, uh, to be fair, if uh, prostate cancer is only in the prostate, um, the survival after treatment is like more than 95% mm. uh, in the long run. But if, it is, um, if the prostate cancer has spread to other organs, uh, what we call metastasis, then the survival is around like 40% plus uh, five years' time. It's still controllable, but it's not curative. Mm. So we strongly recommend men, um, you know, if they have prostate cancer, we should diagnose that at an earlier stage when it is still um, cur- uh, curable. And unfortunately, in Hong Kong, more than 30% of the prostate cancers, newly diagnosed prostate cancers, are still diagnosed at a metastatic stage compared with just 10% um, in the U.S. And if people were getting tested, would they have caught it in that earlier window? If you're getting tested every two years, is it, would, would that number change dramatically to, re, to reduce so that you're catching it earlier and it has less impact? Definitely. Um, if you do it early, um, a larger proportion of men would actually um, uh, diagnose it at an earlier stage. And it is uh, really because uh, most men in U.S. actually at some point in their life would have a PSA testing done. So, so in general, they would diagnose it at an earlier stage. Um, so um, in, this is exactly what we uh, recommend, and we actually recommend um, uh, men to get tested. And also we hope uh, besides uh, like breast, colon, cervical cancer screening, the government can actually have more public education and also um, put more resources um, to help screen for prostate cancer with a simple blood test uh, with the PSA. Are general practitioners in Hong Kong failing Hong Kong men 
because my dentist calls, has someone from his office call me every three months to be like, hey, Andrew, do you want to come in for cleaning? Do you want to get this? And, you know, hey, he's in business. That's, good, that's just good sales and marketing. Um, but I've been over the limit for a couple of years, and my, you know, regular practitioner hasn't raised a flag, hasn't suggested I come in for a test, nothing like that. I mean, and I, I you know, it, it seems to me that the efforts to publicize this always come from things like Movember, Right. When everybody grows, you know, men grow a mustache in November to promote the issue and awareness of prostate cancer. Uh, we definitely talk about it here on RTHK. It's not the first time. But are, are general practitioners failing us by not flagging this in the system and just having a little thing come up and says, hey, by the way, when somebody turns 50, happy birthday, give them a call and say, time to come get your prostate checked and make it part of your life every two years. Uh, right. Uh, I, I don't I, I wouldn't. Uh, comment that as you know the the general practitioners you know the failed their job. You know, I wouldn't say that because it has been quite controversial um, in whether screening for prostate cancer cancer actually brings more good or bad to the patient. But um, this is based on very old um, style of uh, investigation that we had like 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So interestingly, we are practicing medicine uh, based on evidence like 15, 20 years ago. But then these days, we have actually have much more accurate uh, investigations, much less invasive investigations. Even when you have an abnormal PSA test, um, you have further blood testing, you have an MRI scan. Uh, before you even, uh, before a urologist even consider um, putting in a needle, we call it the prostate biopsy, um, to exclude or confirm prostate cancer. So in the past, we used to do prostate cancer in every single man with elevated PSA. Mm-hmm. Uh, nowadays, we don't do that. So, so... Um, uh, but the evidence, uh, suppose uh, in, in the past, um, because they say too many men get tested with a uh, needle biopsy, which caused more problems. So th- there is kind of a misconception till now, not even with the patients, but actually with some general practitioners, uh, that uh, oh, this this is a disease which will not progress, will not kill, and we should not do anything about it. Uh, but times have changed. That's that's a good one for our Facebook page. I'd like to hear from our listeners if their general practitioner has ever, you know, if if, if they're, you know, if they're a male over over fifty. I want to hear if I want to hear on our Facebook page. Has your general practitioner, you know, called you up and said, "Hey, by the way, you're in the you're in the zone. Come in for a test." I, I would be interested to hear from our listeners on that. Yeah, well, I think general protection practitioners should, you know, provide a little bit of a reminder sometimes. Absolutely. But it's also about self awareness as well. So I just want to ask. Um, uh, Dr. Chu, about you know the symptoms. What are the symptoms that we should be aware of? In fact, um, for most um, early or intermediate um, stage of prostate cancer, there is no symptom at all. Mm. So it's you know there is a lot of misconception in men that oh I have no symptoms, so I have no prostate cancer. So this is untrue. So uh, we for these uh, non-metastatic prostate cancer, we can only detect with the PSA. Um, when you have symptoms like um, really bad uh, urinary symptoms or there's blood in the urine or if there is a bone pain which suggests that the cancer might have spread it to the bones, uh, it's actually too late. So it's already quite advanced. What we say is stage four or like those 30% patients with uh, metastatic disease representation. Uh, we don't want to treat patients like that because it's actually much more painful for the patient, much more expensive for the patient and to the government too. So we want to uh, treat it early and, and in a more curative stage. Expensive, that's an issue. How much does it cost to get a blood test, a simple uh, PSA blood test? Oh, uh, I, I meant the uh, treatment of metastatic disease uh, is expensive. But the, the blood test itself, uh, in fact, um, for Hong Kong citizens, you know, you can discuss with the uh, uh, GOPD doctors, the family medicine doctors, you can get it for free. If you need a private doctor, general practitioner in private practice, 
um, you probably can get it like uh, you know within two hundred or two hundred fifty Hong Kong dollars. For What? Yeah, it's cheap. Yeah. Mm. Not 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 that expensive, in fact. Yeah. Okay, and the, the one you know we've got a couple of minutes left. So so I mean, you know, like with smoking, when for a long time they were like, oh, you're going to get cancer, you're going to get emphysema, you're going to get this. What they found really impacted women smoking was, you know. You're going to get ugly earlier. Women are like, oh, no, no, okay, now now I'm strongly motivated to quit. With men and prostate cancer, um, sexual dysfunction, that's what motivates men. Um, <laughs> what impact could it have on your sex life if you have prostate cancer? And if you get it treated early, can you, you know, I mean, will, will treatment impact your sex life or can early treatment save your sex life? I think... Um Uh, the later the stage of the disease, um, the the less likely that um, the urologist or any doctor uh, can actually uh, maintain or, or preserve any uh, sexual or erectile function after treatment. So, for example, for metastatic disease, we need to give some injectable like hormonal therapies, which will peel off all of your libido, and you have no more sexual life um, in the rest of your life. And if it's more advanced localized disease, when you do surgery, we will not be able to preserve the nerves, which um, enable you to have erection so so if it's an earlier stage we might still be able to use various means um, like nerve sparing surgery sometimes radiotherapy or sometimes we have newer modalities like the focal therapy these days we have been doing that for a few years in Hong Kong um, that actually has much lower impact to the sexual function of men mm. well, we'll talk about lifestyle I guess uh, is yeah. there anything else that you know might Increase the chance of having a prostate cancer. I don't know, maybe like smoking, or is there any type of food that we shouldn't be eating too much? Yeah, I think age um, and family history is the strong are the strongest risk factors. Smoking and obesity um, increase a bit, um, not as much as that, like lung cancer or, or, or bladder cancer in terms of smoking, but still there's an increased risk. So it's better to have a good lifestyle, maintain your a good uh, body weight and uh, body mass index. It's a good idea. All right. Well, I'm going to call up my general practitioner. I'm going to give him a couple of slaps and then tell him that I'm coming in for a PSA test ASAP. Thank you very much to Dr. Peter Chu, president of the Hong Kong Urological Association. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, it is time for our Asia Games update with our own Superman of sports, Jamie Clark Kent. Art, okay, Ned Clark Kent, just Jamie Clark, but that's plenty for us. Uh, RTHK sports reporter, Jamie, what's going on at the Asia Games? More medals I hear for Hong Kong. Good morning. Yes, we had two more medals yesterday. Uh, first, a bronze in karate, Grace Lau. So she actually won bronze in the same event in 2018 in Jakarta, 2020 Olympics in Tokyo, and. The same again this year, so yeah, good for her. Aging well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, I wonder how she feels, if she wants more next time or if she just keeps happy to get on it. Go for the gold. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and a silver in squash. I was on here talking yesterday about uh, Simi Chan. She was in uh, a finals match against Malaysia's Siva Sangari Subramanyam. Uh, she, that was a really close game. That went all the way to five sets. And yeah, all, all, the, all the sets only were... Two or three points um, between them, but yeah, she she got silver in the end. Oh, that's I was uh, I was somewhere doing some work next to a squash court. Don't ask why; it's complicated. And a kid came out. He was I think he was like ten years old with his squash coach, mm. and it was on a big screen TV. And they like mm. stopped. And they they knew exactly who all the Hong Kong athletes were, and they were like, 
you know, geared up for Hong Kong to go for gold. So that's, re- that's really exciting. Is it inspiring another generation of squash players? Yeah, I mean, they've had a few medals aco- across the week in squash. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I'm sure there'll be many more coming through, yeah. Fantastic. I think we're doing really well this, this time, isn't it? I mean, what's the medal tally so far? We're on 52 now. Mm. Uh, 52, so that passes the record of 46 from 2018. Um, at the moment, we're one gold medal behind 2018's eight golds. Um, there's a final today in bridge. The men's team are in a bridge final against a team from India. Mm. Um, yeah, that's the final is six sessions. Three mm-hmm. sessions were done yes, completed yesterday. Hong Kong won two of the three, and the third was quite tight. So they'll finish the next three today, and hopefully by the end of the day, that will be another gold. But I mean, at least a silver. So there's also a football matches in there, like today. Yeah, yeah. So the football, the men are in a bronze medal match against Uzbekistan tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That's tomorrow evening. Um, they've already played Uzbekistan twice this this year. Mm-hmm. In the right at the beginning of the tournament, they lost those games, both of those games, one nil, two one. But the Uzbekistan side is really strong. They they were runners-up in the Asian Cup 20, in 2022. This is the under-23 sides. Um, so, yeah, that will be tricky. But, yeah, it, it already to get to a bronze medal match for the Hong Kong side is, is, is a great achievement. So, yeah. And I guess these games have a more expansive version of what games are compared to, say, the Olympics. I mean, if bridge and I hear breakdancing. Yes. So, yes, <laughs> breakdancing. This is the first appearance for breakdancing at an Asian Games ahead of its first appearance in 2024. It will be in Paris in 2024. Um, so, yeah, there are 13 nations competing in the breakdancing. That starts today. Um, Hong Kong have two men and two women. Um, and that's ahead of the, the so the, today they're trying to qualify for the quarterfinals tomorrow and the finals will be tomorrow night in breakdancing yeah I might be wrong about this but also esports isn't it? Is, it is it part of the games too yeah so there's been a number of different I think there's four, five or six different um, games in the esports competition yeah so that's made that's there's been a lot of history being made there the, uh, China won the first gold medal Hong Kong did get a gold um, yeah I can't remember in which what in dreams three kingdom maybe mm-hmm. um, but yeah, esports. The esports center has been packed out every day. Really? Yeah. They, esports was the only only sport that they were handing out tickets based on a lottery system. Mm-hmm. So people had to sign up for a ticket, and people were signing up multiple times just to try and make sure they get a ticket. And then they, they were they were getting getting handed out. And yeah, I think the it's four thousand eight hundred seater stadium for the esports, mm-hmm. and it's been packed every day. Yeah. Wow, that is something. Okay, I mean, this is really blowing my mind, all the stuff that they're including <laughs> in here. What, what do we look forward to for the weekend? We got, we got 15, 20 seconds to go. Yeah, so we got the football tomorrow, like we said. Um, there's also karate tomorrow. Um, Choi Wan Yu is in the women's kum- kumite under 55 uh, kilogram category. And then that's ahead of the closing ceremony at 8 p.m. on Sunday. Um, so, yeah, watch out for those the next few days. All right. This is pretty exciting stuff. Thank you very much, Jamie Clark, RTHK sports reporter, for coming in and giving us the goods on the, uh, on the Asia Games. Fantastic. Uh, really great show today. Thank you very much. We want to make sure everybody tunes in again Monday for Back Chat uh, with Jim Gould and Mike Rouse. I will be manning the desk for Money Talk. So just get on there at 8 o'clock and be ready for two hours of exciting RTHK action. Special thanks to our man, Philip Wong, co-hosting today. Bring it in for a fist bump right on. Thank you to our producer, Raphael Blatt. And Ming is our sound engineer of the day. And this has been Back Chat on RTHK Radio 3. RTHK, the news at 10 with Haley Yip. The observatory says it will consider issuing the strong wind signal number three between five and eight o'clock this evening as Typhoon Koi 